You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Thank you for listening. Four children walked through the wardrobe. Got it by their sister Lucy, Peter Edmund, and Susan Pevensey, find themselves transported from their uncle's home in the country to a land far away called Narnia. Narnia, a land where animals spoke, where a white wicked witch ruled an endless winter, and where people longed for the return of Aslan, the son of the emperor across the sea. That's the story of C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in the seven books of, of that series, we learn how Narnia was first created, how battles took place there, and how the Pevensey children came to be the kings and the queens of the land. We follow the adventures of not only Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy, but other children as well. And it all culminates in the last battle when all of the children return to Narnia one last time, except for one. Peter, Edmund, Lucy, Jill, Polly, and even Eustace come to the aid of the Narnians. But Susan, she's nowhere to be found. And it, was a, it wasn't a fact that didn't go unnoticed. In fact, Tyrion, the, the last kings of the Narnians, addresses Peter with this question. He says, Sir, Tyrion said, when he had greeted all of these, if I have read the Chronicles right, there should be another. Has your majesty not two sisters? Where is Queen Susan? My sister Susan, answered Peter shortly and gravely, is no longer a friend of Narnia. Yes, said Eustace, and whenever you've tried to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy that you're still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. Oh, Susan, said Jill. She's interested in nothing nowadays except nylons and lipstick and invitations. She was always a jolly sight, too keen on being grown up. Grown up indeed, said Lady Polly. I wish she would grow up. She wasted all her school time wanting to be the age that she is now, and she'll waste all the rest of her life trying to stay that age. Her whole idea is to race on to the silliest time of one's life as quick as she can, and then stop there as long as she can. What happened to Susan? That's a great question. What happened to Susan? The the simplest answer to that question is this. She grew up. Susan grew up, and in her grown-upness, she was too mature, too sophisticated, too educated to to fancy things like Narnia anymore. With so many other aspects of life occupying her time, she relegated this land and her adventures in that land to fantasy, something that was fine for children to believe in, but very improper for adults to believe in. But that's the way of adulthood, isn't isn't it? We, we might gain all kinds of independence and freedom and sophistication and nylons and lipstick and invitations, but in the end, we find ourselves wanting. For in our gain, we have sacrificed the very thing that Susan seems to have let go of. Belief. Belief. That, that's what the child of God must never grow out of. In fact, simple faith, because it is naturally beaten out of us as we grow older, is what the child of God must fight for more than anything else. Many Christmas movies can be boiled down to to basically the same plot line. A child has lost their innocence thanks in large part to the cynicism of adults around them. And so because of that, they they have lost their belief in Christmas. So the movie is then a narrative about a a child rediscovering this belief and seeing the adults around him start, start to rediscover that as well. In other words, it's about growing down even when you're already grown up. 
It's what I've been trying to say in this entire series, that growing up in Christ is about growing down in the patterns of adulthood. Like the adults in Christmas movies, we find ourselves beaten down and embittered by the disappointments of life, and consequently it's a struggle then to, to come back to that innocence of childhood. But there's a very key difference here. And it's not that God is different from Santa Claus. Don't get me wrong, they are very different. God doesn't dole out presents based on the, on the goodness or, or badness of little boys and little girls. But the big difference in this case is, is the relative importance of faith in the life of the child of God. When we're talking about Christmas, we're, we're talking about a particular season of the year. You know, basically one or, one or two months out of the year. A child might go nine months for a, a very real life paying very little attention to, to Christmas, to paying little attention to Santa. But then for a short time, their, their belief is heightened. Their attention is, is more detailed. They, they make a list and they leave cookies out and everybody waits around for the big jolly man in the red suit to, to come down the chimney with a bag full of presents. But then January 1 rolls around and life gets back to life as normal, doesn't it? Nothing could be, could be or should be further from the reality for, of this for the child of God, though. For, for the child of God, faith is the centerpiece of all things. And our failure to understand the, the centrality of faith is one of the culprits of us growing out of faith. Think about it like this. Imagine you've got a blank piece of paper, or, or maybe even grab a blank piece of paper and, and do this. Start listing everything that's important to you. Your family, your friends, your education, work, entertainment, tacos, whatever. Whatever it is that, that has some sort of, of place in your heart that you have some sort of affection for, start listing those. And after you've got them all listed down, here comes the hard part. Rank them. Put them, put them in order from, from one to whatever most important. And ask yourself, what on this list has truly captured my heart? It has captured your emotions, your thoughts, your money, your money. And, and over and over again, continue to ask that question until you have them put in a priority list. Then look on your list and see where Jesus ranks. And I know what you're thinking. If he's anywhere except number one on the list, then, then I've got some repenting to do. I, I, I've better find a way to make sure that Jesus gets back to the top of the list, that he's number one on my priority list. But that's a mistake. That's a mistake because Jesus didn't die to be number one on somebody's priority list. Jesus died to obliterate the list entirely. The, the priority list philosophy is broken from the very beginning because it assumes that there's a level of segmentation that minimizes the rule and the reign of, of King Jesus in every part of our life. If you have, for example, your family and, and the Kentucky Wildcats on, on a list together, and I don't know why you would put them on your list, but you might, uh, they can essentially function apart from one another, can't they? They have little or no relationship to each other except for the order in which they, they fall. But the gospel that changes us from old to new and brings life from death goes much further than that. Jesus is not the top of the list. He's the center of the wheel. A, a better visual instead of a priority list might be a wagon wheel. If you, if you picture it, you'll see several spokes that, that come off of that central hub. The hub is what gives all of, their, all of the spokes their, their place and their stability. And, and if a spoke is not locked firmly into the hub at, at the middle, then honestly it's better used for firewood than it, than it is for part of the wheel. 
This is the power of the gospel, though. It takes a disjointed life of competing priorities, and it rounds them off into a circular fashion, all centered at the same hub, that same hub that sits at the very center of the universe, Jesus. Of course, this is, in, in this picture, all of these spokes represent different aspects of life, you know, family, friends, work, relationship, money, food, movies, and everything else in between. But each one of these individual aspects of life are not disjointed from some top priority. Instead, they are all locked firmly in a place and given definition by the hub that's in the middle. And if some aspect of our life doesn't fit into the hub of Jesus, then we know it's time for that spoke to be either reshaped or or removed completely from our lives. Jesus is not your number one priority. He is instead the Lord who gives shape and definition and meaning to everything else in your life. When we begin to actively fight for faith to be central in our lives, we will see that everything in life can be really boiled down to to one question. And it's this one question right here. What do you believe to be true about God? What do you believe to be true about God? That's the age-old question. This is the root question uh, that the serpent raised when it, it confronted Eve in the Garden of Eden. And when he asked this question to, to Eve, her and her husband were found to be lacking in their answer. Revealed in their choice of a fruit that God had forbidden, they exchanged truth, the truth about God for a lie. Here, here's how their story starts in Genesis. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? When, when you look at what the serpent said to Eve, it doesn't really seem all that crafty. It seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? But read between the lines with me here. Satan is saying something else, something more than what he's saying. Satan led his attack with a simple question. Did God really say? Did he really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? It's a twisting of God's word to be sure, but there's, but there's also something else here. He's causing Eve to, to focus on the prohibition that God had given to his children. He, he's causing her to move her fixation to, to the negative, to what she couldn't have, rather than focusing on the positive, on, on literally the hundreds or thousands of other trees that she could have had. And the underlying message behind this simple question is this, that God is a cheapskate, that he's not generous towards you, that he doesn't want you to be happy. But let's not stop there. If we continue to trace this thought down to the center, we we see that Satan is really getting at something else. He's getting at that God doesn't really love you. Because if he did, he wouldn't be holding out on you. But he is. He, He doesn't want you to be happy. And the way that you know that is that there's something else out there that he won't let you have. Now we start to see the craftiness of of Satan. But let's not stop there. Because his craftiness is evident in other subtle ways. Think, for example, the implication of Satan going to Eve instead of Adam. God created the world and and humanity within certain guidelines and within certain systems. And in his design, it was the male who was to lead the home. But Satan didn't go to the male. He didn't go to Adam, did he? He went straight to the female. He went straight to Eve. That's not to say that Adam would have fared any better. But but it was a subversive attack from Satan. In, in this, he's challenging right away the authority, the wisdom, and the plan uh, of God simply by asking this question to Eve at all. Then there's the word choice of the snake. 
If you look back at chapter 2 of Genesis, it's interesting that in this chapter, much as the talk about creation of man and his purpose in creation, and in that chapter, the name of God reads like this. It reads, Lord God. That, that's the revealed name of God, and it signifies his dominance, his mastery, his, his power within the na- and within the name of God as creator. And yet here the snake says, did God really say? Not Lord God, just God. Subtly and subversely, the snake strips away all of the authority out of God's name and causes Eve to hold God at an arm's length, a, a creator who has no real claim over her or her husband. Crafty, isn't it? That's the true genius of, of Satan. With, with each of these seemingly small choices of words or phrases, he steadily chips away at the will of, of the human, not at the will of the human, but at their belief. Because that's the real key, isn't it? Satan recognizes what we should all recognize, that actions spring from beliefs. Actions spring from belief, always. So if you want to direct action, you first need to begin to direct belief. Maybe God doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe he doesn't have authority over me. Maybe he is holding out on me. Maybe God doesn't really love me at all. And the dominoes of a belief system begin to topple over, don't they? And when belief begins to falter, it's only a matter of time until actions follow. And these same questions are, are the root of all the fear, doubt, greed, and self-preservation that run rampant throughout adulthood. It's all traced back to the same question. What do you believe about God? So much of life would be simplified if we were somehow, as the children of God, able to simply take God at His word, wouldn't it? So much frustration, anxiety, and fear would disappear if we were able to hear the voice of our Father through His Word and then accept that He is telling us the truth. Unfortunately, though, we find ourselves often in our maturity, coming up with all kinds of reasons why our situation is an exception, why it's unique. We're a lot like Peter in this respect. In Mark chapter 8, it's a case study of, of the difficulty to simply believe what God is saying about Himself. In this passage, Jesus spoke with crystal clarity about what would happen to him in the coming days. This is what he says, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. It says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, sometimes Jesus spoke, in, in mystery through stories that seem like riddles and, and Jesus talked about the past and he predicted the future and shed cutting light into the present but oftentimes very few people even those that thought that they knew him best understood most uh, or even half of what Jesus was trying to say at any given moment but not in this passage not in this passage there were no riddles there were no illustrations there were no stories here's just the plain old truth of what was coming down the pike very soon, Jesus, the, the one in whom these men had placed all of their hope for the future, would be mercilessly slaughtered at the hands of the one that his disciples were counting on him to defeat. And the clarity was too much for Peter in that given moment. Peter pulls him aside and begins to rebuke him. Hey, hey Jesus, could I have a word with you? Yep, that's Peter. Always pulling Jesus aside. And, and, and what makes this even more astounding to me is, is what Peter had, do, had done just moments prior to this. Just moments before, Peter had said, you are the Messiah. 
That was Peter confessing Jesus as the Son of God. But here he is concerned that Jesus surely has some kind of misunderstanding about what it means to be that Messiah. And so we shake our heads at Peter. Poor, poor Peter, who can't seem to get out of his own way so many times in the Gospels. It's amazing, though, how how many times I scoff at, at somebody else only to find the Holy Spirit turning the mirror on me. The truth is, is that I find myself pulling Jesus aside all the time. It's, it's during all those times when I read something that he said or that he did, and I think to myself, surely he didn't mean what, what it sounded like he meant. Or, or surely this doesn't apply to me in the way that it seems to. In this way, we aren't so much like children who are more than willing to take the word of our parents simply because it was said. Instead, we're more like that, that angsty teenager who is convinced that no one understands them or that they're, they have unique problems that nobody else has ever gone through. And surely, no matter what our Heavenly Father said, He can't expect us to believe it, right? He can't expect us to believe, uh, believe it when He says, Don't worry. Don't worry, Jesus. That, that was fine for the people in the first century, but, but have you looked at the world today? Rest in you, Jesus. Nice idea, but you, you don't have any understanding of the kind of pressure that, that I'm under at work right now. Live simply and seek first the kingdom of God. Sure thing, Jesus. Except for the fact that my phone is constantly blowing up with text messages and emails and and I just have more and more priorities and responsibilities that have to be attended to. Time and time and time again, we do the same thing that Peter did. We pull Jesus aside because our situation is different, we think. Our circumstances are unique. Our, Our struggles are profound. And each time we treat Jesus like some guy who has some good ideas in theory, but they simply can't work in a life as complicated as ours. But Jesus is not a naive Savior. Consider this from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 16. It says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. Don't miss that. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This passage of Scripture speaks to the the spiritual teenager that is inside each of us that echoes our refrain of, you just don't get it or you just don't understand. But Jesus does. Jesus has been tested and tried in every way that that we've been and, and will be. Maybe so, in fact, even more. And yet through all of those temptations, Jesus did the one thing that seems to elude us time and time and time again. He trusted in the word of his father. When he was tempted to make himself king before it was time, he trusted the word of his father. When he was tempted to call down angels to defend himself, he trusted in the word of his father. When he was tempted to run away from from the painful road of the crucifixion that laid before him, he trusted in the word of his father. Jesus, as the the Son of God, believed that he could trust his Father. And because he did, he was willing to take his Father at his word. And because of that, we're the beneficiaries of of his commitment. But we not only benefit from from that, we're the recipients of his righteousness. And because of that, we can be confident that there is not a single, single situation that we will encounter in this life in which Jesus hasn't already encountered and doesn't have some sort of understanding of what what it is that we're dealing with. Jesus knows. He understands. Even if no one else in the universe does, 
He does. And in Him we find the rightful ruler of the universe. As such, we find the king who commands, but simultaneously we find the great high priest who who intercedes for us before the throne of God. Remarkably, the child of God does not find in Jesus a naive savior, but a Jesus who both commands and understands. And the incredibly good news for, for you and for me is that as the child of God, you are not an exception. Your circumstances don't add up to something that that takes God by surprise or finds a loophole in the Word of God. Jesus is not taken aback for one single moment at anything that you are facing. But neither does He minimize it. He he understands all the pressure, all the hardships, all the difficulty, all the reasons that make it so hard for us to simply believe. He understands it perfectly. And in His understanding, He commands that we trust. Above all other things, we must trust as the children of God. Madeline Lingle once said this. She said, we try to be too reasonable about what we believe. What I believe is not responsible at all. In fact, it's hilariously impossible. That's the fight for the child of God. It's a fight to believe that that which is too good to be true, and yet it is. Throughout this series, we, we've talked about all of these characteristics that seem to come so naturally to children and are waiting to be rediscovered by adults. But all of these redeemed qualities have their foundation in God as our Father. And, and that's really the crux of this battle. That's the ground level that we fight for, that we must wage in a thousand ways on a thousand days. Child of God, will you take the Father at His word? No matter how much we might want to make uh, the issue of our lives more complex, they can all be boiled down to this. When we come to our Father, when, when we listen to His Word, spoken over us as His children, everything in our adult selves will try to find an exceptional reason why it, why it can't possibly be true. And again and again and again, our Father looks at us with outstretched arms, inviting us to come back to the core relationship that defines all other things. We are in this way like, like the prodigal son. We, we've been in the far country, and it's a country of grown-ups doing grown-up things on, on a grown-up timetable, and yet when we have been there, we have discovered that it lacks. There is inside of us an inescapable desire to, reserve, to return to the old land, to the old farm, to our, fa- to our father, where everything was simpler, where everything was straightforward, where everything was trustworthy. And so we start together. The long walk back to Him. And it is a long walk. On our journey, we find that each step, though, becomes more familiar. There are the trees that we used to climb at the edge of the property. There's the old stone wall that we used to play hide-and-seek behind. There's the field where we used to run in without worry. And then there's the house. The house that's starting to come into view. And at the house, we see the Father. But the Father isn't just waiting at the house. He's running out to meet us. And we are His children that He takes great joy in. And He's inviting us in without equivocation or exception to come home. To be home. And so can it be true? Is life in this house, in this land, in this country really all that it seems to be? We've seen the ways of the world and all the logic and knowledge and and experience that we've had there tells us that it can't be so. But here's our Father, so full of love, so full of confidence, inviting us to come back home, to come in, 
to come into the house. So we get to the doorstep. And inside there's a party. We can hear the sounds. The, the joy is nearly pal- palpable. It, it's carefree without inhibition. A, a celebration only children can muster. And all that's left for us to do is to take a step over the threshold. To step forward. Until so we step. We, we step because we believe, as impossible as it might seem, that this is the realest of real. That this is the truest of the true. Our Father has told us told us so it is so so the question is will we simply take him at his word will we grow down in all the patterns of adulthood that keep us from jesus so that we might grow up in jesus and be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven so that we can step across the threshold and come back home let me pray for us father god we love you and we, we thank you for a time where we've been able to, to look at some of the things that might make us good citizens of, of our community and, and as adults. But Father, if those things keep us from you, would you, you help us to grow down in them? Would you help us to grow down in all the things that keep us from you so that we might grow up in you? So that we might take you at, at, at your word. That we might trust that what you have said is true. And that we would accept the invitation to come back home. To step inside the house. To join the party. To, to be like children with, on Christmas morning. So excited and, and anxious for, for what's to come. Father, may we have that same excitement, that same zeal for you. That we would grow down in all of the things that keep us from Jesus. So that we might grow up in, in him. And be a part of his kingdom. Be citizens of of the kingdom of heaven. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.